You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you, and we can rejoice in the Lord always. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would speak through these words that I'm going to give. Lord, I pray that they would be your words and that they would be received. Lord, I pray that we would not be the same after today, um, but we would know you at a deeper level, and that we would love you at a deeper level. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you could all come out here today as we worship our Lord together. Today marks week number four in our Advent series, as we have been moving our way toward Christmas. And this week, uh, we're going to be going through the fourth of our graces that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, The focus of our time together this morning will be on Jesus, our reconciliation. So we're going to be digging into that today. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles you can begin turning to Romans chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, please put your hand up. One of our strike team members will be happy to get you one. If you do not own a Bible of your own, please take this one home with you and read it every day. It will change your life if you do so in a good way. Uh, Romans chapter 5. If you have our church Bibles, it is on page 549, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God for us this morning. I want you to think in your mind, how would you answer this question? What happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ? I could ask the question in other ways as well. What happens when a person believes in Jesus or follows Jesus or accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior? I'm going to consider those all to mean basically the same thing. What actually happens to a person when they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Now, you might answer that question by saying that your sins are forgiven, and that is biblical, and that is true. We could also say that a person is saved, which is also true. The thing that stuck out to me as I was studying this passage from Romans chapter 5 is just how many different ways the Apostle Paul uses to describe the Christian transformation in just these 11 verses. So if you still have your Bibles open, uh, look with me for just a minute. In verse 1, Paul tells us that we are justified. But also in verse 1, he says that we have received peace with God. In verse 3, Paul adds that we have received grace. In verse 5, it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts and that we have received the Holy Spirit. If we jump down to verse 9, we see that again says that we've been justified, but also that we have been saved. And finally, in verse 10, we see that we have been reconciled. So in these 11 verses, Paul has already given at least seven different ways of describing what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus. And so this got me thinking, if there's seven already in this passage, how many more ways can I think of that the Bible talks about our salvation? And so I put together a list, which should be up on the screen, and I'm sure this list is not exhaustive. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. We are forgiven, saved, reconciled, born again, as we talked about last week. We are adopted. We are new creations. We have been given new life. We have been brought near to God. We are recipients of the Spirit. We are slaves to righteousness. We are known by God, and we have become the bride of Christ. So to answer the question, what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus? Well, the answer has layers to it. Now, what is interesting about this list is that every item listed up there is different. Every item is unique, but yet they are simultaneously all true. The point of using different language is 
that the Christian transformation requires looking at it from different angles. Every one of these gives us a different perspective. They teach us something new about what it means to be a Christian. So this means that we learn something new when we consider that we have been justified than when we consider that we have been forgiven or saved or born again. So while it's true that we have been forgiven, if the Bible only talked about us being forgiven, well, we would lose so much of our understanding about salvation. We would lose how we were dead, but we were made alive. We would lose how we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. Salvation is too complex to only use one word to describe it. So why am I bringing all this up this morning? It's because this morning I want us to ask the question, what can we learn about being a Christian from the term reconciliation that we don't necessarily get from these other descriptions that I've mentioned? Why did Paul choose to use the word reconciliation here instead of all the other descriptions that he could have used? That's what I hope to accomplish this morning. And I want to start by looking simply at the word reconciliation and seeing what we can find out from that. According to Google, reconciliation means the re restoration of friendly relations. In other words, it means bringing two things together again peacefully. And I think we're all familiar with this word. We know that if there's a married couple, they get into a fight, they separate for a year, and then come back together, we would say that they have been reconciled. But if we look at the word closely, we see that there are three implications to the word reconciliation. First, the word implies that at one time in the past, there had been a friendly relationship. So this means you can be reconciled to your estranged cousin who you haven't seen in 12 years. But if you meet someone new here this morning, for the first time, you can't be reconciled. That's just an introduction, not a reconciliation. To be reconciled, there had to have been a previous relationship. The second implication is that the previous good relationship has gone bad somehow. This means that it's not just geographical distance that has separated people. It's not just busy schedules so you can't hang out anymore. There is relational separation. There is some sort of hostility that has come between the parties. But then the third implication of the word reconciliation is that the two parties have mended their differences and are on friendly terms again. So the word reconciliation, it tells us quite a bit just by its own definition. Well, what I want to do is look at how do these three implications apply to our relationship with God. And to do that, we're going to look at three questions. Question number one, 
what previous relationship did we have with God? Question number two, what is the hostility that came between us and God? And thirdly, how has this relationship been restored? So let's start with number one. What was the previous relationship that we had with God? And to do this, you're going to have to go back to the very beginning of your Bible, because this part didn't last for very long. In the beginning, the first verse of your Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. goes on to say how God created the physical light and darkness. He created the sky and the oceans, the lands. He made the planets and the plants. He made stars and bugs and fish and birds and all living creatures on earth, including the first man. And each step of the way, God declared that they were good. They were uncorrupted. In the beginning, everything was pure. Everything was perfect. Everything was created good in the beginning. Really, the only shortcoming that the Bible says about the beginning was that it was not good for man to be alone. So God made for him the perfect helper. God created for the man a woman. And they had everything that they needed without any corruption. Now, as good as all that sounds... Well, what was better than all of this perfection was that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, got to be with God. They were with God, and they were unashamed. They were with God, and they were unafraid. They were absolutely free, and they were truly alive. I want to actually skip forward a few thousand years um, we're going to read a couple verses from Psalms. Psalm 84:10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 27:4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. These psalmists here in Psalm 84 and Psalm 27, they were longing for what Adam and Eve had in the very beginning. Adam and Eve dwelt with God in the Garden of Eden, they were able to gaze with eyes unveiled at the beauty of God. The psalmists, they yearned for it. Our first parents, they lived it. This was the original relationship between man and God. When you imagine such a place, when you imagine a world that is not tainted by sin, not having any of the evils that we deal with in this world, not having sickness and in death, and walking in the presence of God Almighty, unashamed, with no fear, with no hurry, 
I hope that your heart burns with longing, for that is the home that you were created for. I want you to listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. Is it possible to feel nostalgic for a place that you have never been? I think it is. We were created for God. And until we are fully with him again, there will always be a longing inside of us for our true country. There will always be a reminder in our hearts that things are not the way that they're meant to be. And that leads us to our second question. What was the hostility that came between us and God? I imagine that most of you are probably familiar with the next chapter of Adam and Eve's story. Despite having God's very presence with them, despite Adam and Eve having God walking in the garden with them, they did not walk in faith. They did not believe God. They did not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They doubted God. They gave into temptation, believing that God was withholding something from them, and they deliberately disobeyed. Adam sinned, and with him, all of us sinned. As it says in Romans 12, one verse after the passage we read earlier, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Suddenly, in this one act of defiance, sin entered existence, and along with it came shame, guilt, fear, debt, condemnation, corruption, slavery to sin, wrath, separation, enmity, and death. I said earlier that the Bible has a lot of different ways of describing salvation. The Bible also has a lot of ways of describing damnation. And each one of these, likewise, gives us a nuanced perspective of our sinful condition before the Lord. Each one of these words sheds a new light on the consequences of sin. Now, because today we're talking about reconciliation, I want to focus on just one of these words, the one that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5 in contrast with reconciliation. Look with me again at Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where it tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What does this verse tell us about our position 
before God prior to reconciliation? It says we are enemies, enemies of God. It's probably not something that you hear very often. And when it says we, it means everybody. That may sound harsh and perhaps uncomfortable to some of you, but I don't see how you can look at Romans 5.10 any other way. The context of the chapter and the book as a whole make it very clear that Paul, he isn't just saying that some people were enemies of God. He's talking about everyone. We all were enemies of God. Because of the sin of Adam, our default position before the Lord is not friend. It's enemy. Let's quick look at another passage to help support this idea. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In this passage, Paul he says that we were once alienated and hostile in mind. And do you see this word hostile there? It is the same Greek word that Paul used in Romans 5.10. There it was translated as enemy. In fact, the King James Version and many other translations actually translate Colossians 1.21 by saying enemies in your mind instead of hostile in mind. So just like Romans 5, Colossians 1 tells us that prior to faith in Christ, we are enemies, or we could say hostile to God. This is our inheritance from Adam. I think the Bible is pretty clear on this. Our status outside of Christ is enemy of God. And if you take even 20 seconds to dwell upon the omnipotent nature of God Almighty, that's a terrifying reality. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem right. Sure, there are some radical atheists out there who hate God, and maybe others who have had some bad experiences who hate God, but overall, most people aren't hostile to God. In fact, I'm guessing that most unbelievers in America would probably say that they like God, at least their idea of God. Perhaps some of you today are here and you are not a Christian, but you would think, I'm not hostile to God at all. So how can the Bible say that we are enemies of God when that doesn't seem to match our experience? And so I think an illustration would help us here. I want you to imagine that there was a king and there was a kingdom somewhere. I just put up this picture so you can visualize a kingdom as if you needed help with that. <laughs> um, visualize a kingdom. And like any other kingdom, this kingdom has laws for the people. The law says that every citizen must pay 10% of their income in taxes. Every man must enlist into the king's army. 
and no one is allowed to build anything on the king's private land. Now also imagine that there is a citizen in this kingdom, and he really doesn't care what the king says. He doesn't care about the king's silly laws. So he pays no taxes, he doesn't join the army, and he builds his home right in the middle of the king's field. Is this citizen a friend of the king's? The answer is obviously no. That citizen is an outlaw. He is living as if he were the king. And by doing so, he is choosing to make himself an enemy of the true king. It doesn't matter if the man says that he loves the king. It doesn't matter if the man appreciates the nice roads and the public services of the kingdom. If he does not submit to the king, he is just as good as an enemy of the king. And I would argue he doesn't really love the king at all because if he truly loved the king, he would obey the king. In a similar way, this is humanity's position before God. The human race is in rebellion against the king of kings because it ignores the ways of God. We defy God when we act like we're the king and do whatever is right in our own eyes. When we treat God as merely a helpful idea as if he existed for our benefit, it makes us an enemy. It doesn't matter if someone says that they love God. It doesn't even matter if someone says they have great faith. If a person has not surrendered himself to the king of the earth, that person is an enemy of God. And going back to our illustration, a good king is not one that lets his enemies live in their rebellion. That's the definition of a weak king, of a useless king. A good king does not let his enemy corrupt his kingdom. A good king is just. A good king punishes and purges the wicked from his kingdom. A good king takes that rebellious citizen and throws him in prison. And our king our God is a good king. He will accomplish all of these things in his time. But our God is not just a good king. Our God is a better king. Because our God doesn't just punish his enemies, our God turns his enemies into his friends. Our third question to consider about reconciliation is how can our relationship with God be restored? And the answer to that question is the cross. See, our God is the perfect combination of justice and mercy. He gives just punishment to sinners and gracious mercy also to sinners. Those two seem to contradict one another, but they both to come together in perfect unity in the cross. Look again at verse 10 of Romans 5. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
How is it that we are reconciled? Romans 5 tells us, Romans, Romans 5.10 tells us that we are reconciled by the death of God's Son on the cross. We also saw this earlier when we read Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus' death has reconciled us to the Father because by dying on the cross, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the perfect Lamb, took upon himself the punishment for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus was the one person who ever lived who did not earn his wages. He deserved no death, for Jesus committed no sin. So the death that Jesus died was not for his own sin. He died for us. He died for his enemies. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. He took our punishment. He took the punishment of his enemy's sin upon himself. He satisfied the wrath of God to buy our reconciliation. We do nothing to earn it. It is entirely an act of God in his loving kindness that saves us. He gives it freely to us out of his mercy and grace. This is the good news of the gospel. God taking the punishment of his enemies upon himself. God taking your punishment upon himself so that you can be justified, so that you can be guiltless, so that you can be clean. Amen? Amen there. Yes, hallelujah. That is great news. But that's actually not even the end of the great news. There's more to the gospel of reconciliation. We usually stop there when we talk about the gospel. Our sins are forgiven. Our debt is paid. We are free and no longer under the wrath of God. Hallelujah. What else could there be? Well, I want you to imagine again our kingdom, the king and his enemy citizen. And to continue the illustration, let's say that the king pardoned the man of all of his due punishment. The king paid the man's taxes from his own account. The king made restitution for all the man's crimes so that the citizen no longer had any legal charges against him. He was released from prison a free man. This would be great news for the man, except for one thing. The citizen still doesn't want to pay taxes. He still doesn't want to join the army. And he still doesn't want to leave his home in the middle of the king's field. The man hadn't changed in his heart. He was still an enemy of the king. Nothing had changed. All that the king had done was let an outlaw out of prison. 
the man was right back where he started, destined to return right back again to prison. The law-breaking man, he needed more than just his consequences canceled. The man needed a new heart. He needed new desires. He needed new passions. He needed an entirely new way of thinking. Any ruler who simply just lets criminals out of prison, they might be merciful, but they're certainly not wise. That would be a foolish king. My friends, our God is no foolish king. Our God doesn't just take our punishment away. He doesn't just forgive us and let us go. He gives us a new heart. Remember earlier when I showed you all the different ways the Bible speaks about salvation? Well, this is where we need some of those other words, some of those other perspectives to help us understand reconciliation. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they're not only forgiven, they are given new life. They are given new birth. They've become new creations. They are no longer led by the flesh. They are now led by the Spirit of God. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit working in our lives that changes us from enemies of God to worshipers of God. It is the Spirit that enables us to know God and to love Him. Without the Spirit's work in our life, we remain God's enemies. Look with me again at, not again, look with me at Romans chapter 8, a few chapters after where we've been. Verses 7 through 10. And look here at the contrast between living by the flesh, as enemies do, and living by the Spirit, as God's children do. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." My friends, when a person puts their faith in Jesus, a supernatural event occurs. The old, hostile nature of the flesh is crucified with Christ and he no longer lives. But in his place, a new man is born, born by the Spirit of God, reconciled in relationship with God Almighty. My friends, I hope that every one of you has experienced this new life. I hope that every one of you has experienced the joy of being reconciled to God, having your sins forgiven and your debt paid, but also having your heart changed. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to stop sinning completely. But when the Spirit comes upon you, your new life is now directed toward God to please Him and to live for His kingdom come and His will be done. No longer your own. As I close today, I want to leave you with three quick points of application. Point number one, if you have not yet been reconciled to God, if you are still living as an enemy of God, building up condemnation upon yourself, then may I plead with you, lay down your pride and surrender to the king. His arms are open wide. He's ready to forgive and give you new life in the spirit. You can't earn it. It's a gift. It costs you nothing. Jesus Christ paid the cost. But it likewise will cost you everything. It will change everything. Come and be reconciled to God and find life. The second point of application is if you have already been reconciled to God and you know the new life in the Spirit, then rejoice. Rejoice in the new life that you have been given. Don't let yourself grow cold and apathetic to the glorious gift that we have received. It's certainly better than any Christmas gift that you may be hoping for this year. You have been given God himself and the hope of eternal life with him in the new Garden of Eden, where no hint of sin will taint our joy. Rejoice in the Lord, and I will say it again, rejoice. Finally, the third point of application. Read with me from 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are God's ambassadors on this earth. We are the ones bringing the good news of reconciliation to enemies of God in need of a Savior. So let us remember our mission and let us be faithful ambassadors as we hold out the words of reconciliation to a world that needs him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have provided reconciliation for sinners like us. Lord, that we are no longer called sinners. We are no longer called enemies. That we are now your children. We are your friends. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to understand that more clearly each day. Lord, we praise you. And Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning. Lord, that we know this gift of reconciliation. Lord, that at the depths of our heart, Lord, that you would change us by your spirit. Thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.